Hi, I'm Dr. Barbara Byers. Welcome back to my podcast. Last time I talked about addictive families, and I'm going to follow up now and just talk about addiction in general. It's such a complex issue, and it causes so much suffering and bondage, and it leaves such a legacy of pain within the individual and within the family, just often a sense of desperation. In 2 Peter 2:19, Peter says this, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And indeed, uh, addictions are bondage, they are slavery, but uh, we have great hope because the Lord has made a way. So in addiction, we have two things that come together to drive behavior. One is the temptation. So. Um, I lust after something, something fulfilling, and that's not necessarily sexual lust. So I have that temptation plus, then there is some unresolved pain, some emptiness, some desperation inside of me, because wherever there's addiction, there will be some kind of uh, deprivation um, operating underneath it, as well as shame. So what's the path to the development of an addiction? And of course, this, this is a, a very short, we could talk about this for hours, but I've shortened it. So the path to addiction is first, uh, it, it's very emotion driven, addiction is. So we feel this shame or desperation, we feel the pain, we feel loneliness, emptiness, depression, it wells up. And when it wells up, we look for pain relief. We, we look for a mood change. So we start to get then preoccupied with what soothes us. What has soothed us before? Was it something we ate, drank, exercise, something we looked at, something we did, shopping? Uh, you know, did we pop a pill? Whatever has worked before wants to lull us again. And a lot of times addiction starts with something that's not, not bad in itself, say like exercise or work. Then it, uh, the next pathway, the next step in on the pathway is it sets up a ritual. So to get the soothing accomplished, we do the same thing the same way. You just look at someone say who smokes cigarettes they keep their cigarettes in that same pocket, they take it out, they tap it out a certain way, they have a lighter or a match, they hold it in the same hand, they light it a certain way, they smoke the cigarette at the same time of day and so on. There's a ritual to it. And the ritual itself, or just thinking actually about the ritual begins to soothe us, just the preparation and anticipation and excitement of it begins to elevate our mood a little bit. And so it's really important when we talk about stopping addiction is to understand the cycle we're in so we can interrupt it and know the ritual and interrupt the cycle. All right, the fourth step is we act out and keep acting out, and that develops and develops into an addiction. And then what happens is we get into the cycle after we act out, we feel shame, remorse, self-hatred, regret, hopelessness, powerless, and so on. So we've cycled through. So if we're gonna stop the addiction, research tells us, recovery research tells us, 
We can't do it alone. We need the help of others and we're gonna have to invite others in. But one of the reasons we don't invite others in is because shame often drives our addiction uh, and we, we don't wanna expose our shame. We don't wanna expose ourselves. So we all, we all tend to struggle compulsively with something we go to other than God. I have a counselor friend and he says, we're all struggling with about three addictions at the same time. I don't know if that's true, but I know we are very prone to idolatry. Isaiah 31, six says, return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. For in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for you. So, Addiction is idolatry. Addiction is the psychological term, but the spiritual term is idolatry, and it's something we have to repent of. St. Augustine says addiction is a cruel necessity. Once we get involved in it, it's like, it feels like such a necessity. It's like fire that just says, give me more and more and more air to burn. And our addictions, as we look at our addictions, they're actually good indicators uh, of our wounds. So they are a faulty solution to a real need. There may be real emptiness, but we fill it with something else. They are ways of coping and ways of escape. They are alternatives to feeling where we just numb out with whatever our addiction is. They soothe our anxiety. Think toddler who sucks on a pacifier to soothe that. And most mothers are very happy to have pacifiers. Uh, and we use them to avoid unnecessary suffering. We are uh, suffering averse. We don't wanna do pain. So sometimes we'll prefer our addictions to actually feeling what we need to feel. And when we avoid necessary sufferings, that's just an entryway uh, to ill mental health and to addictions. So scripture is clear, we're going to suffer there is going to be pain in this life. The question is, how are we going to suffer and how are we going to face that? Are we going to meet it with our idols or are we going to meet it with an open heart? So we have to be willing to accept that pain and willing to accept our own limitations. And really, um, addiction is an intimacy disorder. We all want to be known. We all want to be loved. We all need to be known and loved, seen. And um, often behind addiction, as I said before, before, is this deprivation. And we need that filled with love, not with the addictive substance um, or the behavior. So how do we even begin to become addicted? Well, it's, you know, it's to ease the pain. And we take something that works like alcohol and so then oh we do it again except we do it in increasing measure and it gives us a mask for our pain and our shame it gives us a sense of relief at least for a while from our isolation and our need to belong it distracts us from negative feelings and from our despair and uh, we can lose ourselves in it the problem is addiction is actually very narcissistic because I feel entitled to do this or to take this in rather than actually live in real life with the pain it sometimes brings. So it's very egocentric. Uh, and 
the healing doesn't begin until we're willing to tell the truth about ourselves and tell the truth about these things and lay our shame on the table and really unzip. So I, as I said last time, in addiction, it has its own what's called addictive logic, and that's based on illusion. It's based on an illusion of control. And so we create our own sort of delusional system. And then we live in a constant crisis because of the addiction. You know, it's predictable and we sort of like that. It's a predictability we know, but the consequences are so negative. And when we numb ourselves with our addiction, we live in a sort of a sense of suspended animation, right? We don't worry in that moment when we're engaged in our addiction. Uh, an example is Proverbs 31, verse six, give strong drink to him who is perishing, wine to him whose life is bitter. There's the pain of it being masked with alcohol. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. It's kind of a picture of it, isn't it? So addiction is the effect on, uh, on, of sin on two levels. The first level is really um, how we've been sinned against. So sins committed against us. Maybe there's been abuse in our background or generational iniquity. We've experienced abandonment or rejection. Uh, we weren't nurtured. Our emotional needs weren't met. There's some kind of deprivation. And the wounds we incurred uh, were held with all sorts of messages about uh, who, who we are and who we aren't. Dehumanizing, dishonoring messages, disempowering messages. Uh, and even, you know, in our culture, sometimes there's such a lack of acceptance unless you perform well. And it's really a setup for people to turn to addiction when we have these kind of wounds because we're trying to ease the pain of those unmet needs and ease the pain of the wounds. The, the second part of that sin is sins that we commit when we get involved in the behaviors and when we open the door for evil, really, to enter in and rob us and enslave us. And these unhealed places in our heart often will be places where these sinful passions get resurrected and these practices keep demanding more and more expression of some kind. So <clears throat> we end up with this addictive false belief system and it usually begins with core beliefs about ourselves and about life. We believe we aren't enough. Um, we believe we won't be loved. We believe that we're shameful or we should be perfect or we maybe believe that you know, we're entitled to quick fixes or magic solutions, which is what addiction does very, very briefly. Um, some of the addictive personality traits, uh, you've probably heard of, oh, I have an addictive personality. Uh, perfectionism, emotional numbness, approval seeking, hypersensitivity to criticism, fear of rejection, shame, anger, sense of powerlessness, control, isolation. These are all sort of part of the package, or at least some of them are. Uh, we also tend to have, an addict tends to have an absence of good coping skills. Maybe you've had very few role models, or maybe you've had parents who are too tolerant. Um, maybe they didn't offer enough nurture and discipline, enough touch, good boundaries, consistency and discipline. And all these point to us not learning good strategies uh, to be healthy, 
mature, resilient adults who communicate well. And so then we end up just feeling like we don't have any other options. One of the things Patrick Karn wrote, Patrick Carnes wrote, he was uh, kind of a guru in the 80s when he began to notice a lot of these hallmarks of addiction. He said, you have to expand your options. And that's part of growing as an adult is expanding our practical options and seeing things beyond just um, this tight little box we have painted ourselves into. Another is an addiction is we have these unmet emotional, social, and spiritual needs. So uh, that has to change. We have a need for corporateness. We have a need for intimacy, for touch, for blessing, to be spoken to, um, words of value, active commitment with others, sense of belonging, vitality. I mean, all these are part of our humanity, play, fun, acceptance, and worth. And uh, that all has to be mended, if you will, and pursued as part of coming out of our addiction. Also in addiction, we, we generally have lack of support. It's why we desperately need groups and mentors and coaches and counselors, because we there are just so many broken families that are uh, the gateway to addiction. Um, in our dysfunctional families, uh, they convey these false belief systems. And um, addiction itself is a family systems disease. Addiction is a family affair. Some families just have the right soil for susceptibility, the right soil for addiction to grow much more easily. And then sometimes we come from a family system that's very just disengaged, you know, disengaged from one another. Or we come from a family system that's very rigid and authoritarian. The worst kind is when they're both disengaged and rigid. And uh, they'll send us messages like, well, don't feel, don't be angry, don't be selfish, don't cry. Uh, otherwise, you won't be acceptable. So, um, and the measure of a dysfunction in a family and in ourselves is how willing we are not to talk about it. How willing we are to cover it up. And when we cover it up, we're often gonna cover it up with some kind of addiction. And we're taught often to keep the secrets of the family, theirs and ours. But our really our healing begins when we start narrating our stories, when we start telling the truth, when we come out into the light, which beautifully is exactly what the Lord invites us to do. Okay, so in addiction, one of the things we have to turn to is to say, uh, where where is it hurting? Where does it hurt? We have to find that out. And then as we find out where it hurts, we also ask the question, so who, who am I? We have to come to know ourselves as his beloved, secure and known and accepted, really being rooted in that experiential knowledge of that. So when I know where the pain is and begin to get healing, when I know who I am, then I don't have to serve that master of addiction anymore. I can begin to come up out of it and begin to fight it with deep assurance that even if I fall back, his arms are there and I can move forward. Um, we not only have to deal with the behavior, but that's not enough to deal with the behavior. We deal with our sin, that's behind it, the sin of others that may be behind it, and the pain that caused. We just go right to the taproot that's helped that really stronghold, that's another way of saying addiction, the stronghold develop. Um, a great 
illustration of this, and I'm going to read it because I think it's worth hearing. It's David Benner in The Gift of Being Yourself. The counselor tells the story of a minister who's a minister, a pastor who spent many years in addiction. And I'm going to read this, Addiction to Porn, and I want you to notice how narcissistic he was. Our work together took us down a dark, difficult path of self-understanding. Behind the sexual addiction, we discovered a longing for intimacy, not a reservoir of lust. His marriage provided as much genuine intimacy as he could tolerate. But in fantasy, he sought ways of experiencing intimacy that didn't make demands on him like a real relationship does. He didn't give empathy to his wife. He didn't want to engage in a real way. More important, however, we discovered a high degree of resentment and a strong sense of entitlement. That is narcissism. As we explored this, he became aware of a feeling he deserved something better than he was experiencing. He didn't want to live in his limitations. It was this that ultimately led us to his core sin tendency, pride. At root, he was deeply bitter that no one recognized how special he was. Now, he came from a family of a lot of children. He didn't get the recognition he uh, felt like he should have. He had learned to cover his resentment over his unnoticed specialness with a mask of false humility, but beneath that lay a smoldering fire of bitterness. Pride suggested he deserved special treatment. When he didn't get it, he withdrew. This in turn led to a sense of being cut off and deprived of intimacy, and that's what was behind his attraction to pornography, which is a false intimacy at best. Discovering he longed for intimacy, not simply sexual gratification, was not in itself transformational. Accepting the emotionally needy little boy who longed for and feared loving embrace was. So he had to come out of the sin he was in and come in to self-acceptance, which is a virtue. Confronting the depths of his pride and entitlement was so difficult but he began to find freedom when he accepted himself as he found himself to be accepted by God in the midst of his sin. So I wanna finish with the five C's. We need confession, we need honesty. We gotta be honest about our struggles and freely name our sin and come into the light. Then we need community. We need the authenticity in others and the counsel of others, which brings us to consultation. Uh, we need to be in dialogue with Couch, uh, coaches, counselors, pastors, whoever. People can break through our isolation and when they do, that interrupts that cycle. We need consequences, yes, we do. Change is difficult without real consequences. So we need people to love us enough to hold us accountable. And actually consequences help develop new neural pathways in the brain, interestingly. And then the fifth C, and I'll close with this very great hope, is we need the cross and the resurrection. It's the presence of the Lord that changes everything. In the cross, all our sin is forgiven. All the power of our addiction is broken. And in the resurrection, there is grace to live in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to live in a new way. Thanks for listening about addiction, and I hope to see you next time.